it's amazing how little what I do has to do with fashion. It's about helping women find their style or their brand and giving them the tools that they need to be able to use that brand to achieve success, whatever success looks like for them. Welcome to the Bold Moves How Did You Know podcast, a podcast for the naturally curious who want to define their own path. I'm your host, Kristen Rocco, and here I'm sharing bold move stories that propelled my guests from curiosity to action. And in doing so, they've defined a path that is purposeful to them. Through these stories, I hope you'll be inspired to pursue your boldest dreams. With me today is Eileen Nebit. She is a Nashville native, y'all. <laughs> She's moved around quite a bit. Since leaving her alma mater of Vanderbilt, though, she started her career in publishing in New York City, and from there she moved to London, where she studied art at the famous, world-famous Christie's, and worked in various arts-related positions. In 2005, Eileen left the art world behind and moved to Atlanta and started a home concierge business, working with homeowners to manage their home and their home improvements. This work introduced you, Eileen, into the world of residential energy efficiency programming. And so you changed directions yet again in 2010, working for Southeast Energy Efficiency Alliance. After several years there, you then went into a new challenge and migrated your business development skills over to the financial technology space, became the VP of payments at a think tank based in London and in Atlanta. After that, you went to business school to get your MBA, started consulting with companies ranging from multinational conglomerates to small nonprofits. You have done so many different things. I mean, I can't wait for this conversation, but let's address where you are today, which is you are um, have founded a business called Venus Rising at the end of 2022 when you realized that you wanted to tackle another challenge. Um, and so you you kind of went back to the snack you've had for helping people with their dress and style. And you came up with this business idea, Venus Rising, which we'll talk all about in the pod. But first, let me welcome <laughs> you to the podcast, friend. How are you? I'm great. Thank you very much. Great introduction. I am so glad to have you, Eileen. We've known each other now for about six months, and our relationship to me has meant the world because you and I started basically getting into business for ourselves at the same time, and we've been accountability partners, I guess, for the last six months, right? We've been uh, there for each other, able to kind of answer questions as we confront many of the same obstacles in the same moments. So that's been really, really fulfilling to me. So I want to thank you for that to kick off. It was funny, though, when I was reading your bio, I, I've known you for six months, but I had no idea about all of this stuff in your background. So let's get into it a little bit and tell, tell me a little bit more about some of your adventures, your experiences over your life and your career. Wow. Um, <laughs> well, let's see. Experiences. There's one that um, that you didn't mention that would be fun to talk about, which is I moved back from London to the United States and to Atlanta in 2005, and I had never lived here before. And 
I landed and of course I was coming from the art world in London and I met some people in Atlanta who said, um, gosh, we'd love for you to represent um, this person. They're not an artist per se, they were an actor and we'd love for you to represent them. And I said, sure, not knowing, I, I came to Atlanta without a job and not knowing who this person was really. They sent me home with a movie and a book and all this stuff. And anyway, I very quickly realized that this is a, this person they wanted me to rep. His name is Frank Abagnale. And if you don't know that name, that's the Tom Hanks movie, Catch Me If You Can. Frank yes. Abagnale is the played by Leonardo DiCaprio. Is the so, actual guy. So I was working for the actual guy and I came home and watched the movie and I was like, oh my God, this is, this is something totally different. So that's just an anecdote to add even more to the, wow. the, the seesaw that has been my uh, career up until recently. So anyway, yeah. I love that story. That is so fascinating. <laughs> and it, it makes me wonder like how, do you find these opportunities? How are these opportunities coming to you? Well, so I'll I'll take it down a notch into a real brass tacks level, which is I, in the early part of my career, and by that, I mean, you know, 10 years in the beginning of my career, I was not very career minded. I didn't have a career goal. I didn't have a career focus. So you, when you ask, you know, how did you land these opportunities? It was much more um, taking what was offered to me, reactive and not proactive. Mm -hmm. So it's not something that I really, you know, on one level, I'm not terribly proud of it on one level because I mean, it's great, it's great stories. It's great dinner conversation. And yes, it did. It did. I did learn things from it and I gained things from it and that helped me eventually find my path, but it was very haphazard and um, not a method I would really recommend to others. I wish I'd had more of a sense of what I wanted to be at an earlier age. Yeah, but you know, I feel like that's hard when you're in your 20s. You know, how are you supposed to know? <laughs> your eyes aren't even open to what the opportunities, what is possible. It's just such a experimental phase of life i feel like and i kind of think that's the cool factor of your story where you were able to just like try all of these different things in in those years to maybe get a better sense of where you wanted to go i mean do you think that if you hadn't tried all of these different things you would have kind of found where you wanted to go or or how did how did those early on experiences play into what you eventually decided you wanted to do I think that I think at the very base of it I was I still am but I was even more so I was a huge risk taker so mm -hmm. I my parents called me the child of wanderlust I would you know i lived in south africa for a while in in 1991 which happened to be the year mandela was released it was a very unusual time for wow. a single young american woman to be living in south africa so i think there's something very empowering terrifying but empowering about taking big risks and taking them early now these weren't necessarily career leaps yeah. that i was taking but they're still risky and so I think when you do that, you develop some muscles around the kind of risk that you can tolerate and being able to go out in the world and stand on your own two feet. 
-hmm. So I think, I think that was very helpful to me in everything I've done since then, because I, I stand back and I can say, oh, listen, you know, I've, I've moved around a lot. I lived in different countries. I've done this all solo. I can do this next thing. So it kind of gives you a confidence that I don't think I would have had otherwise. That's a really good tip that you can practice being bold, um, but you do have to walk through some you have to be willing to take risks and be un be uncomfortable in some situations, right? I agree. Um, and the more that you do it, the the better you are at taking on the next opportunity and not making it feel as big as maybe it would have your first time around. I think you're right. We've talked about some of these career experiences you've had and some of the personal experiences you've had, right? From living and working in London, South Africa, and then moving to Atlanta, starting a home concierge business, which I had no idea you you did. Um, what like what are what would you say were some of the most defining moments of your life? The the and 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 particularly, what are the bold moves that shaped who you are? So I think what we just talked about is one of them. So taking risks and. Uh, living in different parts of the world, I think, gives you a great perspective mm -hmm. on on life, on things, on work, on friendships, on everything. So I, you know, I knew you were going to ask me about bold moves, obviously, and living internationally, mm -hmm. deciding to live internationally, how you live internationally, learning about the countries in which you're living and how to successfully navigate those infrastructures and you know, I, I, all of that is a is a bold move that um, yes. that we just talked about. That was that was very helpful to me. Um, I think on a personal level, another bold move that I didn't actually take, but that was given to me is I've always been unusual in that I've I am very tall, and for a woman, and this is this is quite unusual. So I'm six foot two, and I think I had to learn very early on that I was different and that people looked at me differently and treated me differently because of that height. Um, and that's personally and in, and in the workplace professionally too. So I think that's another bold difference of mine. Mm -hmm. um, I also credit, there are a couple of other um, bold moves that I can think of. One is I worked, you mentioned one of those companies I worked for for seven years. It's called the Southeast Energy Efficiency Alliance. I had a transformative boss there who has since become a great friend of mine. And she really changed the way I approached work and approached some aspects of my personal life. So that was a transformative um, moment for me. And what is that? before you leave that, what was yeah. that change? What what mentality shift did she do for you? Help you help you see. We worked a system called the collaborative operating system. Hmm. So uh, do you know this? I've you, heard you of it. Your, OK. Yeah. So COS. So we worked with we trained with some COS coaches who were, I don't know, on the West Coast somewhere. And it was this whole process of a very, how to run an organization very well, but with a very flat structure. In other words, not mm -hmm. so much hierarchy. And there was a lot of 
training that went into this, but it was a lot of learning how to work with other people effectively and how to move the ball forward. So it was learning how to make agreements about, about how you make agreements at work, learning how to work with a group and understand and collaborate on how you're going to make decisions. And it was breaking things down to very small levels to the point of how you give feedback to colleagues and bosses and direct reports. So it was a very, hmm. it broke everything down into, I think what at the core of it, it's a, it's a safe place, right? You're all buying into this collaborative system it is a safe place. No one's trying to throw someone else under the bus, but here are the guidelines for how mm -hmm. we work together, how we make decisions, how we give feedback, how we improve. So she was, um, this particular boss was very good at leading us through this process and it changed how I approached my future jobs. It changed how I approached relationships because it, I think at the core, it made me focus on drill down to what was happening at the core and finding the words to describe what was happening at the core when you are uncomfortable or when you're in a difficult conversation at work or personally. Um, so mm. yeah, it just, it gave me better language mm. and the emotional, uh, the EQ to be able to deal with uh, uncomfortable and sometimes antagonistic situations at work and personally. What are some other defining moments that you can think of in your life? Um, and then the other one was going back to grad school and get, getting my executive MBA at Georgia Tech, which really was amazing and, and plugged some holes for me and gave me some muscles and some areas like, you know, finance and uh, macroeconomics that I didn't have and, and confidence to be able to tackle starting a new business. So those, those are two pretty big ones, I would say, that have helped tremendously. Okay. Um, I'm writing notes over here so I don't lose my train <laughs> of thought and we can go back. Um, let's go back to the international travel because I want to drill into, you know, you said when you were talking about that, you know, most people would find it really hard to navigate moving internationally, you know, uh, assimilating into the culture and finding their way. And so this podcast is, yes, it's like, what have you done that's bold to help inspire other people that, you know, we're just normal people, but maybe we're doing things a little bit differently because we um, see an opportunity and we have that desire and we put both of them together and take action. And, but the second part is how did you know, like, what was your process for evaluating all of these international moves and opportunities? You know, what, what did you learn out of that experience that could help other people who are considering moving internationally? So my first international move, if you want to call it that, it was really only six months was when I went to South Africa. And that was precipitated by growing up in a family that, that used to go to Africa all the time. So I grew up as a little girl and would see slides and movies and, and I was fascinated. So I think it was always a seed in my brain that was like, oh, I really want to do this. And 
when I was at Vanderbilt, I was dating someone at Dartmouth who graduated Dartmouth and then went with a program called Harvard World Teach, mm. where he moved to Kenya and built a school and taught the school for a year. And I went over to visit him and and then I've been back several times and spent a lot of time in South Africa and, and Zimbabwe and Zambia and some other countries. But so there was a reason behind jumping off a ledge like that. But um, I think when you're young, there's this there's this fantastic thing, which is you you take risks and you re don't really know what can go wrong. And so you're kind of <laughs> yes. you're kind of uninformed and it. And you jump at these things. So I was, I was just jumping. I wasn't looking at the obstacles. I was just saying, yeah, that sounds great. So yeah, I don't, uh, that's, that's literally how that would happen. And then for London, I was living in New York and working in publishing. And I had met a man in South Africa randomly, uh, an Englishman, and we had become friends. And when I moved to New York, he wrote me and he said, you won't believe this. I'm back in London, but I'm engaged to a woman from South Africa and we're moving to New York. So they were in New York and we all became best friends. And it was great. Yeah. They, had a, they had a son. I became godmother. They moved back to London and I'd been in publishing for three years and I wasn't really excited about it. And I thought, London, what can I do in London? I think I'm going to go to art school. So, you know, it just <laughs> like I say, and I, I say this you know, with the hands in the air, this was reactive, not proactive. This was Eileen's going out into the world, having fun with her life and not really thinking long-term, but that's how, that's how I ended up, you know, in both of those places. So much about what makes life fun and worth living is really the varied and different experiences that you have that are not just all about, you know, drilling into your career, you know, and being on a straight path, but kind of being free spirited sometimes is, is, in my opinion, one of the ways to maximize your life, you know, and it seems like you really had that intrinsic in intri intrinsically within you, right, that free spirit nature, and that, you know, I'm gonna, do things as they occur to me and figure it out. And it's that figure it out mentality that maybe is all about also the figure it out mentality is in some way also connected to making a bold move. You know, this, this idea that I'm resourceful and I'll just figure it out once I get there. Yes. And I think this is a good uh, reminder for me because sometimes when I look at that part of my life and all the jumping around I did and all the different things got involved with, I can easily talk it down mm. and I can poo-poo it and say, oh, I lacked direction. Oh, I lacked a goal. Oh, I wasn't, I wasn't career minded. And all those things are true, but I can talk it down. And what happens mm. is when I tell other people about <laughs> my life, excited. <laughs> it's, I have so many people say, that's so amazing. And and, and these are these are corporate, what I call corporate people who I think would look down their nose and the opposite happens. They're like, oh my gosh, that's what, how enriching to your life and, and what credibility you bring and you've lived in all these different places and tried all these different things and they see it as positive. Yeah, it's a, I, I have to reframe the way I think about it and think of it in more in a positive light than I think I tend to do sometimes. When you were just 
saying all of that, I was thinking about how we're so hard on ourselves yeah. and, and other people experience our, our lives and our situations in a much more optimistic way than we often do. And for me, this conversation that we're having around this topic is a good reminder of the need to be more positive, to be more optimistic about going through life and not attaching what we're doing to a negative to negative meaning, you know? It's like, okay, we're doing the best with what we have right now, right? And we're making decisions based on the information that we have today. And that's good enough. We don't have to layer it with a lens of societal expectations of what we should be. And I think often that's what happens when we feel bad about what we're doing because we are we expect ourselves to be these other people. And in reality, we are who we are. And why can't we just be who we are and, and that's okay, right? Well, it's right. And it's also so hard to shrug off those societal yes. expectations because you're supposed to have, you know, at this age, you're supposed to have this title and this yeah. amount of money and this amount of demonstrable success. And so when you, when you go a different path from that, it's, there is that societal expectation or weight that you can feel and that others, you know, attribute to you. So it's hard just to shrug that off. And I, you know, it's something that I've struggled with, you know, quite a bit. Yeah. All right. Let's transition to talking about your latest endeavor, Venus Rising. <laughs> Started in December of 2022. Yes. So right in the middle of the holiday season last year. Take us through your journey of starting Venus Rising. What is it all about? What does the name stand for? And how did you get the idea? Well, let's start with the name. It's Venus rising is meant to convey feminine power. And there's lots of Venuses that, you know, we could refer to throughout history, but really those are the things that stood out for me. And my brother-in-law is a marketing guru and he came <laughs> up with the name, thank God, because if it had been left to me, I would have called it Eileen's wardrobe services or something along <laughs> those lines. Yeah. So that's, that's the name. So the history of why I'm how I got here is through all of this roller coaster of my career, I've always been really good at dressing women. And I think part of that goes back to the fact that I'm six foot two. And the, when I was growing up, well, I was six feet in eighth grade, and there were no clothes that really fit me. And I didn't want to be stared at and people stared at me all the time. So I think I wore like my father's baggy shirts and I just tried to kind of disappear into the woodwork. But at the same time, I was very aware of what my cute, friendly five foot two friends were wearing. And I kind of developed an eye for what looks good and what doesn't and scale and color and proportion and all that sort of thing. So while I'm doing all these things and living in all these different places, I am the go-to person that all of my friends and family come to when they need to buy clothes and get dressed and figure out what looks good and flatters them. So always that had been in the background. And post-COVID and post-grad school, when I was in the consulting space, I thought, okay, what if I consult? But what if I consult in my own business and really try to make a business out of 
this wardrobe and image consulting that I've been doing for others my whole life. So that was the genesis of the idea. And it's funny, when I announced to family that I was starting it, they were all like, it's about time. We've been telling you you do this forever. So, so that was the internal family reaction. The, the external business reaction was somewhat different because here I am doing you know, management consulting and, and had different jobs um, in energy and fintech. And so that was a little bit more of a left turn that I had to explain in social media posts about how I came to this. So that's how I got there. And then, like you say, I started the business in December. And by April, I think the website was up and running, as was social media. And I, the whole thing and I've said this to so many clients and friends, it's amazing how little what I do has to do with fashion. Mm -hmm. It's about helping women find their style or their brand and giving them the tools that they need to be able to use that brand to achieve success, whatever success looks like for them. My target audience are is the corporate woman who's you know, 35 plus, she's probably had children. She's post COVID, her body may have changed. She's got a busy job. She's powerful. And typically she really, she knows she's not presenting herself in a way that um, increases her confidence or shows her self to her best ability. Mm -hmm. So she knows she needs someone, but she really doesn't, this, this ideal, this, you know, ideal client doesn't really want to spend their free time shopping and, and figuring out their brand and doing all this stuff on their own. So it, the business is really built on being a partner mm -hmm. to these women and help them pivot and change their direction. They're older, their jobs are bigger. Maybe they're going for an even bigger job. Their bodies have changed. Their lifestyle has changed. Styles have changed. And they need help figuring out where they sit and all of that and how to kind of set themselves up for another, you know, five, 10 years of a brand that they want to represent. So there, your client's image, you know, helps convey confidence in the workplace, right? And so they, they intuitively know that, but they have trouble themselves um, figuring out how to bring that together. And so you're able to step in and help guide them. And I'm assuming in your client meetings, your initial client meetings, you're asking a lot of different questions to help you identify what their personal style is. And therefore, you know, their, which, which kind of represents their personal brand in a physical sense. What are some of those initial questions that you ask clients to help them identify what their personal style is? So you're so right in something you said, and I want to come back to answer your question about confidence. I have clients who are CEOs. I have clients who are in the nonprofit space. I have clients who are retired. I have clients across the gamut. I would say down to the person, the real problem that's being solved is they don't feel confident. So what I... Yeah. So you, you hit the nail on the head. It's speaking about confidence because it all comes down to confidence. Well, and I just want to put a period there real quick before we continue on to highlight for everybody that no matter what position you hold, you 
most people are not confident that they have insecurities and vulnerabilities. It doesn't matter if you're the CEO of a company. And I think that I want people to really hear that because I think often people think of CEOs as having it all put together and they know exactly what to do and how to navigate every situation. And that's just not the case. And um, I think that's really important for people to, to let absorb, you know, because we're all in one way, shape or form comparing ourselves to the next person to identify where we should be. But even when you get to that should be position, you are still, you still are trying to figure it out at every next step. And so I want to encourage people to find confidence in where you are today, because just getting to that next place doesn't make you more confident innately. I would agree with that wholeheartedly. (laughs) Okay. So the question then is, and I'm like, what was the question? Oh no, but it was about questions that you ask your clients to help them start identifying their style. Right. So another interesting thing to think about is these are, these are incoming clients. These are clients coming to me. I don't go to people and say, gosh, you really need to, you really need to change your style or up your game. So it's, it's all, it's all incoming. There's no, there's no judgment. Once a client has reached out to me because of whatever issue or whatever job or whatever situation that's going on in their life, what typically happens is I do an in-home consultation and this is no charge. This is getting to know them. It's typically an hour. And it's great on a lot of levels because you always want to build trust. This, what I do, the services that I provide, they're very intimate. You know, you're talking about someone's lifestyle, the way they look, the way they dress, their, their body shape, their age, everything. So it's a very intimate process. So that building that trust very early on at the beginning is is very important. What typically happens in that hour is, excuse me, half hour of talking, and then we tend to carry the conversation into the closet. The first half hour. (laughs) I love that. I know. Um, So the first half hour, what I'm really trying to find out is what's the current situation? What are the roadblocks? What does success look like? And what brand do they want to be? And a lot of people aren't used to the concept of being a brand. And so to help them think about it in a way that is helpful to us is a couple of things. Think about words. I have have clients who want to be approachable. That's the brand they want. They want to be approachable. I have other clients who want to be seen as authoritarian or authoritative. So the, there's always these descriptors, these adjectives that are helpful when thinking about a brand. And another helpful tool that I get clients to do is to think of a personification of that brand. And a lot of people will have a movie star or a TV actress or a famous business person in town or someone that they can point to and say, you know what, or even a social media influencer. It could be any of those things. But they'll be able to point to someone and say, I really like this. So then that helps me say, okay, what is it about this that you like? Well, she wears colors, but she wears them with confidence. And again, it comes down to the confidence thing. So there's always this mix of psychology and 
and confidence and clothes. And there's that mix of all of these things. And once you help a client identify what they want to be Mm. and then what success looks like, it's really helpful. And the other thing that I do with them that's very important in that first half hour before we go look at their clothes is I I'm getting I'm getting more and more clients who are not American and who are here working for big corporate, you know, companies and they've got big corporate jobs. They need what I call an American accent or a way to merge with the American market. The thing that I spend a lot of time talking to new clients about is I don't want to erase their brand or their culture or anything like that. It's a matter of taking their brand and tweaking it in a way such that it suits the corporate brand where they work. So it's very much, I'm very focused on being able to um, work with clients who come from all areas of the world and Mm -hmm. who are working here in the United States and need a way or want a way to look a certain way, feel a certain way in the American market. So that's the first half hour of the talk. And then, like I say, we go into their closet. I get a sense of the styles and the colors and the, you know, are they someone who has 13 rooms full of clothes and they haven't done a, you know, a call in 10 years? Are they someone Mm -hmm. who has a capsule wardrobe and they, are just all dressing in the wrong color or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So that gives me a better idea. Okay. I want to ask your face. Your face is like, I have so many questions. I know so many questions. (laughs) I love this topic and I think we should do another podcast episode, honestly, about style identity and expectation because you know as you're talking about these you know women want to dress in a way that reflects their personal brand i totally buy into that you know we all have a vision of who we want to be and i could not be more excited about the notion of being able to personify that through myself you know with with the clothes i the clothes I wear and, and, and things like that. And, and the accessories too. I'm a big accessories person, although I've gotten less so in recent years, but love accessorizing and all of that. So it's definitely a way to, you know, represent who I am and who I want to be through my style. And at the same time, there's a layer with style and how you present physically that is also about expectation in the workplace and about um you know a a thought crosses my mind well why can't i just dress how i think i should dress and be respected in the way i want to be respected and so just transparently eileen that comes to my mind as well as a real inequity between men and women and how unjust that feels to me yes and this is this is an age old topic. And, you know, sometimes it's so true. And sometimes when I talk to clients, you know, part of the language I use is for better or for worse. Yeah. We are living in a society where impressions matter and women are, here it comes for better, for worse judged on how they appear and 
that is that is a big part of what women have to deal with just to get to the same starting block as men. They have to, you know, there's this, there's this pressure in society. And then within a corporation, there's of course the own pressure that comes within this corporation. So working with women on empowering them and enabling them to bring themselves to work and, and making adjustments that they are happy making such that they are more approachable or in line with the corporate brand. Yeah, it's a big deal. It's not a, it's not mm. a straight path. It's, it's not easy to navigate that on your own. Yeah. I want to uh, acknowledge you for stepping into being very brave and stepping into a space that has a lot of um, emotion in it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not easy to have to navigate that conversation with clients. We don't want to erase them, but we want to empower them and help them achieve the success that they're going for. You know, this really bleeds over into DE&I. So diversity, equity, inclusion. And I'm starting to talk to more groups that are focused on this because it really, it's such a tightly um, related topic. All right, so we've talked a lot about style, but maybe for, that comes with a lot of connotations. So maybe we could just define style before we move on. So I'm getting into the rapid fire questions. And the first one is, what is your definition of style? So there's a, Yves Saint Laurent had a famous quote that fashions fade and style is eternal. And to me, that almost translates into, um, Style is climate, fashion is weather. So fashion is that changeable thing that's in and out every three months and style is more is more eternal. I think that style is individual to the person and it's it's what is what complements you instead of you trying to fit in to what is supposed to be complementing the masses. How does someone know if they should update their personal style? The thing, so I have a client form that I send clients when they're interested, when they contact me. And the thing, when I ask this question, the thing that they point out is their age has changed or they've recently taken a position with a new company or Mm -hmm. um maybe a friend in some circumstances has suggested that this would benefit Mm -hmm. them. But again, I'm coming back to an old standard here. They don't feel confident. And they say that in this form, Mm -hmm. they don't feel like they are representing themselves externally to the, um, to the extent that they should be. And their job is big and their influence is big. And yet they are stuck in a 20 year rut where they've been wearing the same J crew, nothing wrong with J crew, but whatever the brand is, they've been wearing the same thing for 20 years and they know they need to up their game. And I think it's very much to do with confidence and Mm -hmm. where they're going in their career. I just went through this myself where I updated my personal style because, and I think it's exactly what you're saying, Eileen, my style was stuck in me as a a generation ago 
And, you know, I think, I think oftentimes people get, um, you know, we progress in our lives, we change, (laughs) we get older. (laughs) We change everything except this. Yeah. Style is the last thing that evolves along with us. And, um, and and it it has a lot to do with like, I don't want to use the word getting stuck. Right. But sometimes in our minds, we may be doing things that re uh, that that we know are because of our experience and and what we've done to get there but like mentally maybe i still feel i mean i'm i'm 40 this year but mentally i still feel like i'm 33 so it's not weird or or you know to to think that my clothes may still be representing a 33 year old self because internally that's kind of the age i feel right Right. So I think there's something there too about, you know, people get stuck in, in this mindset of, oh, I'm still 33, but really I'm 40. And maybe my body has now changed my, um, I don't know, you know, other things at play. Maybe I don't even like wearing flowers anymore, but I still have flowers in my closet. Um, it's so true. <laughs> it's so true. And someone mentioned this to me the other day. There's some Seinfeld clip that I need to watch, but Seinfeld talks about this. And the way he talks about it apparently is men dress the way they dressed their last happy year of their lives. So oh. that's Seinfeld's take on it. But he's basically saying, yeah. I think the way it's been portrayed to me is men at 20 or 22 or 24, yep. whatever, when they're still living the good life with no responsibility, yep. they find a style and that's the way they're dressed for the rest of their lives. <laughs> and I think women can do that too. Um, uh, and I think for women, it's harder in a way because you know there's so many expectations on us from society that we know how to do all this stuff. We know how to dress. We know how to change and adapt our style as we get older. And most women just don't know how to do that. I know that we're running out of time. Um, so here's we one, are. Yes, one yeah. last rapid fire question, then we're going to wrap up. We're crossing into fall. What staples should everyone have in their closet? Okay, so I don't know about everyone, but for me, it's a tweed jacket. It is uh, the greatest pair of jeans. It's tall brown boots, and it's the perfect, not too thin, not too thick black turtleneck. Thank you very much. Eileen, it has been a pleasure having you on the Bold Moves How Did You Know podcast. If people want to learn more from you, hire you as their wardrobe consultant, how can they find you? They can find me via my email, Eileen at wearingwhatmatters.com, or they can find me on social media at Venus Rising Wardrobe. Thank you so much, Eileen. It's been so fun. And thank you for everyone else for tuning in. Please make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss another episode. We'll see you in the next one. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.